Good evening. My name is Eugene Meyer. I'm president of the Federal Society, and I want to welcome you all to the fifth annual Barbara Olson Lecture. We've had four distinguished lectures already in this series. Uh, Ted Olson, who gave a memorable speech, which I suspect many of you were at and many of the rest of you have read, uh, to inaugurate the series. Uh, we, we, we've had, we've had uh, Judge, Judge uh, Ken Starr, Judge Bork, and Justice Scalia have been the previous lecturers. Uh, before uh, uh, going ahead with the introduction, uh, I want to I want to start by just mentioning what this what this lecture is about. Barbara Olson led a life of distinguished public and private service as an attorney in Washington D.C. She came to the law after successful ventures as a ballet dancer and a Hollywood production manager. As a 1989 graduate of Chosa Law School, Barbara's legal career included tours of duty in a lot of different places. The U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel, a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. She served as Deputy General Counsel and Solicitor to the, House of to the U.S. House of Representatives and Chief Ex Investigative Counsel to the U U.S. House Committee on Government Reform and Oversight and as Counsel to the Assistant Majority Leader of the U.S. Senate. And at the time of her tragic death, Barbara was a partner in the Washington, D.C. law office of Balsh and Bingham. Barbara's a perfect example of a citizen lawyer. She regularly directed her talents toward defending limitations on government power and against overreaching and corruption by public officials at all levels. Much of what she did as a practicing lawyer in government and in the private sector was directed in that way. But she also took this message to the airways as a thoughtful, and for anybody who knows Barbara, a spirited, who knew Barbara as a spirited commentator on all of the nation's leading television news programs. Importantly, also her service to the Federalist Society further demonstrated her strong commitment to the rule of law in our system of limited constitutional government. Barbara's close association with the Federal Society began during her law school career when she founded and served as president of the Cardozo Law School chapter which is how I first came to know her. Uh, I st still remember the, the boundless enthusiasm she brought to that as she did to everything she did. She later served as an officer of our Washington, D.C. chapter and, her, uh, and of our administrative law practice group, and also as a member of the Nat Society's National Practitioners Advisory Council. She reached out to the Federal Society's membership throughout the country as a frequent guest speaker at events. And with her, with her husband, Ted Olson, who's here tonight, <laughs> Uh, but uh, they, they have hosted an, uh, an annual barbecue at their home. They hosted an annual barbecue at the home, their home, which I think was initially Barbara's idea. Uh, and they have inspired generations of our student leadership with, with, with that barbecue where they have a chance to meet all kinds of senior lawyers and very prominent people, people such as Justice Thomas have been at that barbecue several times, and our students meeting them inspires them. And this was not an accident. Barbara intended exactly that sort of encouragement and inspiration when she and Ted uh, uh, did this. <clears throat> the Federal Society believes it's most fitting to dedicate an annual lecture on limited government in the spirit of freedom to the memory of Barbara Olson. In addition to some of the other things I've mentioned, she just had a deep commitment to the rule of law and understood well the relationship between respecting limits on government power and the preservation of freedom. And significantly, Barbara was an individual who never took freedom for granted in her own life, even in her final terrifying moments. Her inspiring and energetic human spirit is a testament to what one can achieve in a world that places a premium on human freedom. And given that this lecture is in memory of Barbara, who was such a strong patriot, I think it's especially appropriate that this year's lecture falls on, on Veterans Day. And I would like to ask everyone to take just a moment to reflect on and thank our past veterans and those currently in the field around the world, and especially in Iraq. Thank you. And to in introduce this year's Barbara Olson Lecture, I'd like to call on the Federal Society Exec Executive Vice President Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo, in addition to his uh, immense work with the Federal Society over the last decade, was in the very first group of clerks 
for, uh, for tonight's speaker, Judge Randolph. So it seemed especially appropriate for him to do this introduction. Leonard? Thank you, Gene. Judge A. Raymond Randolph is a man of extraordinary talent and distinction. This year marks his 15th anniversary on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, where he has acquired a reputation for crafting the most elegant and incisive opinions on even the most complex legal subjects. His years of outstanding public service as Deputy Solicitor General of the United States under Robert Bork, who is here this evening, as an Associate Solicitor General to Erwin Griswold, and before that, as a law clerk to Judge Henry Friendly, prepared him very well for judicial office. Between his various tours of duty in public service, Judge Randolph had an enviable career in private practice, working for super lawyer Jack Miller, representing key officials during the Watergate era, and rounding out a career of what I think is a total of 26 arguments before the United States Supreme Court. Judge Randolph would say, he won, I think, all but two, though Judge Randolph would say he won all because the court later reversed itself in the two cases he lost. <laughs> Anyone familiar with Judge Randolph's life and work knows that these professional achievements tell only a part of the story. His deep appreciation for art, literature, and nature is manifested in so very many ways. He has a real eye for both watercolor, uh, painting, and photography. He is a voracious reader, always sharing wonderful little anecdotes about whatever fascinating book is on his nightstand at a particular moment. He is an aficionado of both Samuel Johnson and Mark Twain, prepared to offer up a witty quote for whatever the occasion may be, and we may have to return your price of admission if he doesn't provide such a quotation. And Judge Randolph is a skilled fly fisherman who clearly draws enjoyment from the challenge of the catch and the peace and beauty of the wilderness that surround him. When clerking for Judge Randolph, I became acquainted with the writings of Judge Learned Hand, including a particular speech that Judge Hand delivered in New York City's Central Park in 1944. In that speech, Judge Hand posed the question, what is the spirit of liberty? though Hand humbly, humbly suggested that he could, did not, could, not define, uh, the, could not define it, he then set forth one of the best descriptions that I've ever seen, and I'll quote from it. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure that it is right. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which weighs their interests alongside its own without bias. The spirit of liberty remembers that not even a sparrow falls to earth unheeded. The spirit of liberty is the spirit of him who, near 2,000 years ago, taught mankind that lesson it has never learned, but has never quite forgotten, that there may be a kingdom where the last shall be heard and considered side by side with the greatest. The spirit of liberty is manifested in all that Judge Randolph does for the common good, and in those private moments enriching his own mind and soul. But that spirit is perhaps most importantly present in his devotion to those whose lives he touches. His extraordinary wife, Lee, his, his children, his wonderful children, two children, his extended family of associates and law clerks. His sincerity, wit, and sense of charity are a source of, source of joy for many. The spirit of liberty is something Barbara Olson cared very deeply about. It was the essence of Barbara's irrepressible nature, which no doubt Judge Randolph and Lee had the privilege of enjoying one last time while sharing a wonderful evening at the Olson home on the evening of September 9, 2001. And so it is with great pleasure that I now call upon Judge Randolph to deliver this year's Barbara Olson Memorial Lecture. Thank you. Leonard, thank you very much for that uh, most gracious introduction. I'm very honored to be here. It's so good to look out and 
see so many old friends. But one is missing, and so this is for Barbara. It's well known that Henry Friendly was one of the greatest judges in our nation's history, along with Holmes and Learned Hand, certainly one of the most brilliant. What's not well known is that Henry Friendly wrote, three years before Roe v. Wade, the first opinion in the first abortion case ever filed in a federal court. No one knows this because the opinion was never published. I have a copy of the opinion, as does the Harvard Law School, where Judge Friendly's papers are sitting, waiting to be indexed. And tonight, I want to share this opinion with you for the first time publicly. I hope that you will agree with me that Judge Friendly's draft of 35 years ago is not only penetrating but uh, prophetic. I have read my copy many times, not because our court hears abortion cases. In 15 years on the D.C. Circuit, I've never sat on one. I have read and reread my private copy because it embodies such a clear and brilliant message about the proper role of the federal judiciary, because it is timeless, and because it is a classic, I think, in legal literature. After I give this opinion to you, I want to compare it with the Supreme Court's performance uh, from Roe v. Wade to Lawrence versus Texas. Now for some history. In 1968, a few years after Griswold versus Connecticut, Roy Lucas, an assistant professor of law at the University of Alabama Law School, wrote a law review article. It was entitled, Federal Constitutional Limitations on the Enforcement and Administration of State Abortion Statutes. In his article, Lucas acknowledged that legislative efforts to reform state abortion uh, statutes were making headway. But he had a quicker and easier way through the federal courts. And he advocating, advocated using Griswold and its, quote, penumbral right emanating from values embodied by the express provisions, in the express provisions of the Bill of Rights to have the laws declared unconstitutional. After his article appeared, Lucas founded an organization in Manhattan, and he named it, of all things, the James Madison Constitutional Law Institute. For the next few, four years, he was involved in virtually every abortion case throughout the United States, including ultimately Roe v. Wade. Lucas chose to bring his first case in New York. The case was assigned to a three-judge district court. At the time, the federal actions challenging the constitutionality of a state statute were heard by panels consisting of two district judges and one court of appeals judge, with direct appeal, not certiorari, to the Supreme Court of the United States. Henry Friendly was drawn as the court of appeals judge, and I was his law clerk. There were several evidentiary hearings and a mountain of pleadings. Judge Friendly's customary practice was to discuss the case with his law clerk and then draft the opinion himself, with a law clerk ser serving as an editor. We had many conversations about the New York abortion case, but not once did Judge Friendly mention his personal views on abortion, and I never offered mine. And that was how it should be. In the early spring of 1970, the judge and his wife Sophie went off on a long-planned cruise through the Panama Canal. The abortion case must have been weighing on his mind. While on the cruise, without the benefit of a law library, he wrote in longhand a preliminary opinion and mailed it to Chambers. The package arrived just about the time President Nixon was nominating Harry Blackman uh, to the Supreme Court. The judge's secretary typed the draft in the usual triple-spaced legal size format and handed me a copy, together with a note from the judge. In the note, he said, that during the cruise, his views on the case had crystallized his word, and that if I found time hanging heavy, I should start working on the draft. Judge Friendly added in a note to all of us, the trip has been just fine. The ship is perfect, built for cruising and very modern. The only rub concerns our fellow passengers. About two-thirds of them are Californians. <laughs> 
And if I were in Ray's shoes, I'd think twice before settling there. I was thinking about it. <laughs> Most of them regard New York as a foreign city, and their political views are somewhere to the right of Reagan. <laughs> Yet they are well supplied with money. Many of them, having, having taken the cruise both ways, a rather evident lack of imagination. <laughs> I did not make much headway on the judge's draft. Shortly after it arrived, the New York legislature amended the state's abortion statute to allow abortion on demand during the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. The three-judge court dismissed the case, no opinion issued. In sharing Judge Friendly's draft with you, I must ask for your patience. It was intended for the eye, not the ear. And I will have to summarize large portions of it. But I will read some parts exactly as he wrote them because they have such an important bearing on the Supreme Court's continuing struggle with the problems he identified so long ago. The judge began by going straight to Lucas's argument regarding Griswold. He wrote, at first sight, the Griswold decision would not seem to afford even a slender foundation for the plaintiff's superstructure. The Connecticut statute struck down in Griswold was the most offensive form of anti-contraception legislation possible. It banned the use of contraceptive devices. Griswold, he thought, might rest on the obnoxious prospect of the police, as he put it, spying the marital couch. A prospect, he thought, by the way, extremely unlikely in any event. Judge Friendly viewed abortion as another matter entirely, having nothing to do with privacy of the Griswold uh, variety. Quote, the type of abortion the plaintiffs particularly wish to protect against governmental sanction is the antithesis of privacy. The woman consents to intervention in the uterus by a physician with the usual retinue of assistants, nurses, and other paramedic personnel. While Griswold may well mean that a state cannot compel a woman to have an abortion, it is exceedingly hard to read it as supporting a conclusion that the state may not prohibit other persons from committing one. The judge then moved to what he saw as the heart of the plaintiff's argument. Quote, that a person has a constitutionally protected right to do as he pleases, in this case her, with her own body, so long as no harm is done to others. As I'll discuss in a moment, the Supreme Court, knowingly or unknowingly, has embraced this concept as a matter of constitutional law. Judge Friendly would have none of it. He wrote, apart from our inability to find all this in Griswold, the principle would have a disturbing sweep. Seemingly, it would invalidate a great variety of criminal statutes which existed generally when the 14th Amendment was adopted and the validity of which has long been assumed, whatever the debate has been about their wisdom. And then this. Examples are statutes against attempted suicide, homosexual conduct, bestiality, drunkenness, unaccompanied by threat of breach of the peace. Much legislation against the use of, use of drugs might also come under the ban. He continued, plaintiff's position is quite reminiscent of the famous statement of John Stuart Mill. This has given rise to spirited debate in England in recent years. We are not required to umpire that dispute, which concerns what a legislature should do, not what it must do. And then he wrote this. Years ago, when courts with considerable freedom struck down statutes they strongly disapproved, Mr. Justice Holmes declared in a celebrated dissent that the 14th Amendment did not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. No, no more did it enact John Stuart Mill's view on the proper limits of lawmaking. Because I'm going to come back to this, I want to pause here and give you very, very briefly the theories of Spencer and Mill. In his dissent in Lochter versus New York, to which Judge Friendly referred, Justice Holmes summarized Herbert Spencer's idea. This year, by the way, is the 100th anniversary of Lochner versus New York, which struck down a New York law regulating the maximum hours that bakers can work. Holmes put it this way. 
Spencer laid down a principle in his book, Social Statics, that a person had the liberty to do as he likes so long as he does not interfere with the liberties of, of liberty of others to do the same. John Stuart Mill, Spencer's contemporary, proposed much the same idea in his book on liberty, published in 1859. Mill's harm principle, as it came to be known, was this. The only power for which, uh, which can rightfully be exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. Judge Friendly, after rejecting the Mill notion as much as uh, uh, Holmes did, Spencer, uh, turned to the evidence in the, new in, the new York, excuse me, in the New York abortion case. The evidence dealt with, quote, the hardship to a woman who is carrying, carrying and ultimately bearing an unwanted child, the, the plight of the unmarried mother, the problems of poverty, fear of abnormality of the child, the horror of conception resulting from incest or rape. These and other factors may transform a hardship into an austere tragedy. But then he said this, yet even if we were to take plaintiff's legal position that the legislature cannot constitutionally interfere with a woman's right to do as she will with her own body so long as she does not harm others, the argument does not support the conclusion plaintiffs wish us to draw from it. For we cannot say the New York legislature lacked a rational basis for considering that abortion causes such harm. Even if we should put aside the interests of the father, negligible indeed in many cases, when he has abandoned the, the prospective mother, but not in all, the legislature could permissibly consider the fetus itself to deserve protection. Historically, such concern may have rested on theological grounds. And there was much discussion concerning when animation occurred. We shall not take part in that debate and we shall not determine or attempt to exactly when a fetus becomes a human being. It is enough that the legislature was not required to accept plaintiff's demeaning characterization of it. Modern biology instructs, and this is 1970, that the genetic code will dictate the entire future of the fetus as early as blank day. I was supposed to fill that in. <laughs> That was probably my only contribution that he expected. <laughs> the fetus is thus something more than inert matter. The rules on property and of tort have come to increasingly to recognize its rights. While we are a long way from saying that such decisions compel the legislature to extend the fetus the same protection against destruction that it does after birth, it would be incongruous for us to hold that a legislature went beyond constitutional bounds in protecting the fetus as New York has done. He continued, we would not wish our refusal to declare New York's abortion statute unconstitutional as in any way approving or legitimating it. The arguments for repeal are strong. Those for substantial modification are stronger still. And then this, but the decision what to do about abortion is for the elected representatives of the people, not for three or even nine appointed judges. Judge Friendly then predicted the issues that would arise if a court ruled the other way, issues that have plagued the Supreme Court ever since it did just that three years later in Roe versus Wade. For each of his points, which I'm about to read to you, I could drop a footnote citing one or more of the dozens of Supreme Court uh, cases that have come down after Roe. Judge Friendly mentioned, and you have to realize he's writing this at a time when almost all state statutes outlawed abortion with the only exception being the life of the mother. So he's projecting ahead, thinking if there, if there is reform, what form would it take? And this is what he wrote. He said there's a large range of policy choices for revising state abortion laws, including danger to the health of the mother, conception by incest or rape, and probable abnormality of the child. Quote, a legislature might permit abortions whenever the mother was below a certain age, whenever she was unmarried, when the parents could establish inability to care for the child, and so on. 
there is also room for considerable differences in procedures, how far to leave the decision to the physician performing the abortion, how far to require concurrence by other physicians, or where appropriate psychologists or social workers. One can also, also envision a more liberal regime in the early months of pregnancy and a more severe one in the later months. There is also opportunity for debate, both on eth ethical and physiological grounds, as to what is early and what is late. The legislature can make choices among these variants, observe the results, and act on the observation. Experience in one state may benefit others. In contrast, a court can only strike a law down, leaving a vacuum in its place. If we were to accept plaintiff's argument based on Griswold, we would have to condemn any control of abortion, at least up to the uncertain point where the fetus is viable outside the womb. That's Roe v. Wade. We find no basis for holding that by, and I'll be finished with this in a moment. We find no basis for holding that by ratifying the 14th Amendment, the states placed at risk of judicial condemnation, statutes then so generally in effect and still not without a rational basis, however one may regard them from a policy standpoint. Over the years, of course, the Supreme Court has treated each of these policy considerations as if it were a matter of constitutional law. Roe did leave a vacuum, to use Judge Friendly's word, and the court has no other law to apply except three words in the 14th Amendment, due process, liberty. Judge Friendly ended his draft with his view of the proper role of the federal judiciary. An undertone of plaintiff's argument is that legislative reform is hopeless because of the determined opposition of one of the country's great religious faiths. Experience elsewhere, notably Hawaii's re recent revision of its abortion law would argue otherwise. But even if plaintiff's premise were correct, the conclusion would not follow. The contest on this, as on other issues where there is determined opposition, must be fought out through the democratic process, not by utilizing the courts as a way of overcoming the opposition, clearing the decks, and thereby enabling legislators to evade their proper responsibility. Judicial assumption of any such role, however popular at the moment with many high-minded people, would ultimately bring the courts into the deserved disfavor to which they came dangerously near in the 1920s and the 1930s. However we might feel as legislators, we simply cannot find in the vague contours of the 14th Amendment anything to prohibit New York from doing what it has done here. To this, Judge Friendly appended a note to me. It read, to be inserted, he said, at the appropriate point in the draft. And the note read this, read this way. If a woman has an absolute right to the destruction of a fetus incapable of making a decision for itself, it would be hard to see why a man or woman does not have an absolute right to have his body destroyed. The discomfort of pregnancy and the pain of childbirth are surely not more than what often attends years of infirmity without hope of cure. The economic burden of an added child, readily avoidable if the parents wish, are not the same order of magnitude as the costs of many terminal illnesses which may consume or exceed the savings of a lifetime and entail misery for a surviving spouse. Now, history's full of what-ifs. Over the years, Judge Friendly's opinions and writings have had a profound effect on many areas of federal law. And I have often wondered whether the, his New York abortion opinion, had it been published, might have made a decisive difference. On the lower federal courts were abortion cases, and recall this is the first abortion case, and the lower federal courts were abortion cases were pending around the country and perhaps ultimately on the Supreme Court of the United States. He too must have wondered, but years later he said that he was, quote, happy that the New York case had been mooted by the state legislature because that's where he thought the issues belonged. 
Griswold versus Connecticut has been much in the news lately now that Supreme Court confirmation hearings have returned, and I want to say a few more words about it. The author of the court's opinion, Justice Douglas, denied that it rested on substantive due process. Douglas, a new dealer, had a vivid memory of Lochner and the mischief it caused until the court changed course in the late 1930s. In the interim, the court, relying on the Lochner analysis, had struck down nearly 200 state and federal laws. They talk about super precedents. And so, Justice Douglas avoided due process and instead invoked the first, third, fourth, and fifth amendment and penumbras and emanations from these provisions from which he derived a zone of privacy constitutionally protected. No one seriously supported the Connecticut law in Griswold, but there are many objections to the Griswold reasoning, and no one has made them more dispassionately, courageously, or powerfully than Judge Robert Bork. I want to register my own objection to Griswold and its technique. Justice Douglas treated the case and approached the Bill of Rights as if he were a common law judge dealing with a series of judicial decisions. And we all know how common law judges operated. They analyze a group of past judicial decisions, consider the reasons behind the decision, and come up with a principle to explain them, and then apply that principle to the new case. This does not work with the Bill of Rights, and it doesn't work with legislation. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose I read the provisions of the Clean Air Act, which unfortunately I have to do every once in a while. <laughs> and I decide that emanations from the Clean Air Act, maybe I, maybe I should say emissions from the Clean Air Act, <laughs> create, a, create a right to a pollution-free environment. And from then on, I use this general right to a pollution-free environment to decide cases without any regard to the language of the Clean Air Act. The Griswold technique is exactly the same. Now, some people may object that the Constitution's different from a statute. After all, as Chief Justice Marshall wrote, and as Judge Easterbrook reminded us yesterday, quote, we must never forget that it is a Constitution we're expounding. Whenever someone took Marshall out of context like that, Alexander Bickel had a rejoinder. Quote, we must never forget that it is a blank check we're expounding. <laughs> At least the Griswold court, near the end of the opinion, tried to tie the right of privacy to a specific constitutional provision, the Fourth Amendment. And Justice Douglas asked, would we allow the police to search the sacred precincts of the marital bedroom for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives. It was that aspect of Griswold that Judge Friendly and his draft focus on. And Judge Bork did the same in his confirmation hearings in 1987. I want to give you one small example of what Judge Bork endured. And this is from the transcript. Judge Bork. Nobody ever tried to enforce the Connecticut statute, but the police simply could not get into the bedroom without a warrant. And what magistrate is going to give the police a warrant to go in and search for signs of the use of contraceptives? I mean, it is a wholly bizarre and imaginary case. Senator, if they had evidence that a crime was being committed. Judge Bork, how are they going to get evidence that a couple is using contraceptives? Senator, wiretap. Judge Bork, wiretapping? <laughs> this vision of somebody saying, hey, Bill, you'll never believe what I'm doing with a wife. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Bork, wiretapping? Senator, wiretap. <laughs> Judge Bork, do you mean to say a magistrate is going to authorize a wiretap to find out if a couple is using contraceptives? Senator, they could, could they not, under the law? And then I think the, tr the, uh, the microphone caught Judge Bork under his breath. It was unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> I 
On January 22, 1973, a date I remember well, it's the date my son was born, but something else happened. The Supreme Court handed down Roe v. Wade, fulfilling Roy Lucas's dream just five years after his law review article appeared. Needless to say, the court's opinion did not even come close to measuring up to Henry Friendly's rough draft. The heart of the Roe opinion is easy, in fact, too easy to describe. The court cited Griswold, listed various provisions of the Bill of Rights that were said to create zones of privacy, and then simply announced that the constitutional right of privacy was, quote, broad enough to encompass a right to an abortion. And that was that. The next day, the front page headline in the New York Times read, Supreme Court settles abortion issue. I've never read a retraction. <laughs> Roe v. Wade was greeted with withering academic criticism, not only from those who were uh, opposed to abortion, but also to those who thought abortion, uh, from those who thought abortion should be uh, available. John Hart Ely's 1973 Yale Law Journal article was devastating. Ely concluded that Roe, quote, is bad because it is bad law, or rather because it is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to be. Since then, scarcely anyone has attempted to defend the Roe opinion on its own terms. Archibald Cox, no opponent of abortion, doubted that any reformulated opinion could ever be written to support the Supreme Court's result. Over the years, there have been many attempts. Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe has made several. And just a few weeks ago, a new book appeared entitled, quote, What Roe v. Wade Should Have Said. The book contains mock opinions written by law professors. I've not read it yet. Unlike Griswold, Roe embraced the concept of substantive due process to strike down the Texas abortion statute. Substantive due process, as you all know, is the idea that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment protects rights even if they're not separately set out in the Constitution. The due process clause states simply, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And given the theme of this conference, one must ask about the original meaning of those words. The 14th Amendment is exactly the same, identical to the Fifth Amendment, which, de uh, which controls the federal government. Two current justices, I'll let you guess who they are, think the phrase substantive due process is an oxymoron. Process means procedure, not substance, and that is what it meant historically. That the due process clause ever came to apply to legislation, as it did for the first time in the infamous Dred Scott case, is strange enough. What does the process do from a legislature? A quorum? An accurate vote count? There's something else I find quite odd about this concept. In many of the substantive due process cases, the court stated that fundamental liberties are protected. Roe v. Wade is an example of that. Freedom of religion is, by all accounts, a fundamental liberty. Are we to suppose that freedom, that freedom of religion is a right the state can take away so long as it does so with due process? That would be protecting a civil right in one amendment, the First Amendment, only to allow it to be removed in another. The framers were very smart people, and they could not have intended such an absurdity. And they didn't. There's been a lot of focus on what due process means, less focus on what does liberty mean. History shows that the meaning of liberty, as used in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, is simply freedom from restraint. That is imprisonment. This explains why the framers put the Due Process Clause in the Fifth Amendment, which deals almost entirely with criminal proceedings. Learned Hand, years ago, found the historical evidence, which he studied, supporting this interpretation clear, beyond, in his words, a reasonable doubt. Yet the chances of the Supreme Court going back to the original understanding, I think, are slim to none. As Judge Friendly anticipated before Roe, and as many critics of the opinion have noted since, it's extremely difficult to see abortion as a right of privacy, even if such a right might be derived from the Due Process Clause. Privacy deals with seclusion and with keeping personal information secret. 
although the Constitution does not use the word, it's fair to say, as Judge Bork did in his hearings, that portions of the Fourth, Fifth, First Amendment deal in certain specific ways with protecting seclusion and secrecy. This still leaves the question, why abortion is a right of privacy? Among its many faults, Roe v. Wade never even attempted to give an answer. And over the years, many people, lawyers and non-lawyers, have come around to Judge Friendly's view that abortion is not about privacy. Only a few weeks ago, Richard Cohen, a liberal commentator in the Washington Post, who was not opposed to abortion, wrote that the very basis of the Roe decision now, quote, strikes many people as faintly ridiculous. He continued, as a layman, it's hard for me to raise profound constitutional objections to the case. But it is not hard for me to say that it confounds our common sense understanding of what privacy is. The Supreme Court itself may have entertained similar doubts. In cases after Roe, a subtle change began taking place. The court began stressing that the privacy involved was a woman's, quote, private decision to have an abortion, with the court often italicizing the word decision. But this explanation could not hold for long. It was not the decision to have an abortion that was in, at stake in Roe, it was the carrying out of that decision. People make all kinds of decisions in private. One person may privately decide to rob a bank. Another person may decide in private to smoke crack cocaine. Someone else may decide to commit suicide or to give a speech, which may be the same thing. <laughs> that the decision is made in private says nothing about whether the person is exercising a constitutional right in carrying that decision out. It may be that the court realized this. But for whatever reason, the right of privacy is first conceived in Griswold, no longer drives the Supreme Court in substantive due process cases, even in those involving abortion. In more than a decade, the Supreme Court has not decided a single case on the basis of a general right of privacy. Little appreciated, lost in the rhetoric of privacy, Griswold and Roe have morphed. Griswold's zone of privacy for married couples and Roe's right of privacy for women in matters of abortion have become everyone's right to do as he or she pleases so long as there is no harm to others. This is the principle of John Stuart Mill and Herbert Spencer, a principle Judge Friendly rejected, as had Justice Holmes. You would not know any of this from the Supreme Court confirmation hearing held last September, after a gap of 11 years. It was as nothing had changed. The old questions were dusted off and asked again. Does the nominee believe that the 14th Amendment protects a general right of privacy? Was Griswold versus Connecticut with its penumbras and zones of privacy correctly decided? Is a woman's right of privacy as recognized in Roe v. Wade, settled law, and so forth. Most of the commentary and the press releases and the sound bites about Griswold and Roe were along the same lines. All of this missed the major transformation that started in the mid-1980s. The court began framing the constitutional right involved in Roe, not simply in terms of a private decision anymore, but in terms of, quote, individual dignity and autonomy. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, handed down in 1992, was the watershed. The joint opinion of Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter described Roe as resting on a, quote, rule, whether or not mistaken, of personal autonomy and bodily integrity. The opinion repeated several other times that personal dignity and autonomy were central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. Justice Blackmun, in his concurring opinion, picked up on the theme, reformulated his decision in Roe, one resting on, quote, decisional autonomy. Some thought the opinion, the decision in 1997, another issue that Judge Friendly predicted, assisted suicide, uh, put an end to the personal autonomy rationale. The court rejected the idea 
that just because many of the rights protected under the Due Process Clause could be categorized that way as resting on personal autonomy, that every intimate personal decision is so protected. Rather, the Court said that if we're going to create new rights under the 14th Amendment, they have to be firmly rooted in this country's history and traditions. This at least gave the appearance and the hope that in the guise of progress under the Due Process Clause, the Court was not simply making it up. But two years ago, the Court turns it, turned its face against Glucksburg. Texas had a law making homosexual sodomy a Class C misdemeanor, a traffic offense, punishable by a small fine. As a matter of fact, in, in, in Lawrence, the fine was so small that the lawyers for the defendants protested and asked the judge to increase it. It was so small they were not allowed an appeal under Texas law. The judge accommodated them, and we got Lawrence versus Texas. The court therefore overruled Bowers versus Hardwick, thus adding to the long list of cases the Supreme Court has overruled. Lawrence not only tossed out the analytical framework of Glucksburg, it contradicted a host of other precedents dealing with state police power, precedents dating back to the 1880s or 1800s. The Congressional Research Service, by the way, reports that through the October term 2003, the Supreme Court has overruled, can you guess how many, in whole or in part, 324 of its past decisions. So much for stare decisis. Without mentioning Glucksburg or any of the state police power cases, Lawrence created a new constitutional right to engage in homosexual sodomy at least if this wasn't done in the, in the public square. Lawrence is full of rhetoric having only a remote connection to the facts of the case and no clear connection to anything in the Constitution. After quoting the autonomy language of Casey, the Lawrence court said this, quote, the liber liberty presumes an autonomy of self and the instant case involves liberty of the person both in its spatial and in its more transcendent dimensions. The law schools greeted Lawrence, the Lawrence decision, with cheers, fireworks, and free beer. <laughs> Among the professors, there were only a handful of detractors, the most notable being Nelson Lund and John McGinnis in their Michigan Law Review article. Lund and McGinnis did for Lawrence versus Texas what John Hart Ely did for Roe v. Wade. Professor Tribe, once again, offered an, alter an alternative basis for decision. In his Harvard Law Review article, he proposed putting Lawrence on First Amendment grounds. After all, he wrote, the First Amendment protects the right to peaceably assemble. <laughs> and those terms, quote, should be taken in their most capacious sense to include the right to engage in homosexual sodomy. He then explained, quote, for what are speech and the peaceful commingling of separate selves, but facets of the eternal quest for such boundary crossing, for exchanging emotions, values, and ideas, both expressible in words and wordless in the search for something larger than and different from the merely additive utility aggregating collection of separate selves. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> the actual Lawrence opinion confirms Judge Friendly's insight of 35 years ago into the true nature of controversies of this sort. The general rule, said the Lawrence court, is against attempts by the state or a court to define the meaning of a relationship or to set its boundaries absent injury to a person. This is John Stuart Mill writ large. The court repeated the same theme, theme throughout its opinion, emphasizing that the case did not involve persons who might be injured or coerced. A statement nicely blending Mill's no harm to others principle with Herbert Spencer's social statics. The court also cited with approval the model penal code, which opposed punishing, quote, private conduct not harmful to others. 
no matter that the model penal code was a call for legislation, not a constitutional interpretation. Judge Friendly wrote in his draft that the 14th Amendment did not enact John Stuart Mill's on liberty. Lawrence versus Texas ruled otherwise. Supreme Court decisions command compliance. They do not command agreement. And on this issue, I side with Henry Friendly. Consider the historical evidence. Writing in 1859, Mill talked of Mormons in Utah practicing polygamy and discussed why at some length, according to his principle, they were entitled to do so. Congress did not agree. It refused to allow Utah statehood because Utah hadn't abolished polygamy. And in 1862, only a short time before sending the 14th Amendment to the states for ratification, Congress passed a law outlawing polygamy in the territories. To suppose that the 14th Amendment incorporated Mill's principle, one would have to believe that at the same time Congress was telling Utah to abolish polygamy, it was sponsoring an amendment that would make any such state law unconstitutional. To quote a famous American, unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> At one time, the Supreme Court itself did not believe it either. Paris Adult Theater, in an opinion by Chief Justice Berger, cited Mills on liberty and then expressly rejected his harm principle as a, as a basis for deciding constitutional law issues. The court held the Constitution did not incorporate the proposition, quote, that, moral, that conduct involving consent, consenting adults is beyond state regulation, thus echoing Holmes's Lochter dissent. What was the response to this precedent in Lawrence? Nothing. Silence. The court did not even cite the case. Among the court's many failings in Lawrence was its inability to see, or if it saw, its failure to admit the many problems Mill's principle raises. What kind of harm to others should be recognized? Why should a legislature be forbidden from legislating on the basis of morality? Is that even possible? Judge Friendly, in a portion of the opinion of his draft that I condensed, mentioned the debate on Mill's theory in the 1950s between Lord Devlin and H.L.A. Hart in England, a debate, by the way, triggered by the Wolfenden Report on homosexual sodomy. The Lawrence Court invoked the Wolfenden Report, which urged Parliament, not the courts, to enact reforms. When Mill talked about the absence of harm to others, and when the Supreme Court did the same in Lawrence, who exactly are the others they have in mind? The court assumes that the others are only the living. But what about the unborn and the generations that will follow us? They will be affected by the society we leave behind, and I know of no principled reason to exclude them from consideration, even if Mill's principle reflected constitutional law, and neither did Judge Friendly. You may recall that after stating the Mill principle, the judge confronted it on its own terms. He wrote, that even if the harm principle were constitutional law, the state had made a rational judgment in treating the fetus as an other, worthy of protection. There's an irony here. On Judge Friendly's reasoning, Lawrence, by aligning itself with Mill, has therefore undermined the foundation of Roe v. Wade. Mill's principle and the court's adoption of it moves in the direction of radical autonomy. I know some of my friends on the left and some of my friends who are libertarians welcome this. The Lawrence Court denied that it was imposing its own moral code. But autonomy itself is a moral value, and it tends to crowd out other values. As Jennings and Galen point out in their book, The Perversion of Autonomy, quote, autonomy now preempts civility, altruism, paternalism, beneficence, community, mutual aid, and other moral values that essentially tell a person to set aside his own interests in favor of the interests of other people. Now, if I were a legislator, I might well go along with Mill and Spencer, sometimes. 
Mill believed that his theory would allow not only polygamy, but also legal prostitution and some group activities among consenting adults, which I will not go into. <laughs> I might vote for repealing sodomy laws, but not the laws against those other activities. Legislators do not have to be logically consistent in their votes, nor do they have to extend their dictates to their logical conclusions. It's another matter entirely when the Supreme Court of the United States makes the Mill-Spencer philosophy a tenet of constitutional law. And that is exactly, precisely, the point of Holmes' dissent in Lochner. The Lawrence Court never even acknowledged that its countless decisions dating back to the 1880s, which held that a state's power to regulate, its police power, these ancient cases beginning in the 80s, uh, 1800s, extended not only to the health, safety, and welfare of its citizens, but also to matters of morality. Even Lochner acknowledged this. Yet the Lawrence Court, ignoring this huge body of precedent, not even citing it, not even attempting to distinguish it, declared, quote, the fact that the governing majority in a state has traditionally viewed a particular practice as immoral is not a sufficient reason for upholding a law prohibiting the practice. This is a shocker, or at least it should have been. No one can safely predict what the court will do with its earlier decisions upholding state laws against polygamy and bigamy, against prostitution, against gambling, against alcohol use, against obscenity. The law, the court wrote in Bowers, is constantly based on morality, and indeed it is. How else to explain not only the laws that I just mentioned and the ones cited in Judge Friendly's draft, but statutes prohibiting bestiality, voluntary self-mutilation, dueling, sadism, assisted suicide, bear baiting, cockfighting, cruelty, even to your own animals in your own home, and many more. Justice Scalia wrote a powerful dissent in Lawrence. The majority responded by ignoring the dissent, a practice which unfor unfortunately is becoming more common on the Supreme Court. In the two years since Lawrence, the Supreme Court has not cited the decision even once. The High Court has a distinct advantage. It, con it controls its docket. After an upheaval, it can take a breather. But the lower courts, state and federal, have no such luxury. They, we, must grapple with what the Supreme Court has handed us. And now, throughout the country, in case after case, Lawrence and the reformulated Griswold and Rowe are now being used in efforts to strike down a vast array of laws, some with deep historical roots. Lawrence is invoked in suits seeking to force states to recognize homosexual marriage. It is used as a defense in obscenity prosecutions and to attack laws against pedophilia, adoption of children by homosexuals, prostitution, polygamy, sex offender registration, statutory rape, the military's don't ask, don't tell policy, and on and on and on. A note in the Harvard Law Review recently, plausibly, I think, relies on Lawrence to argue that there is a constitutional right to use marijuana for medicinal purposes. And a law professor has written a lengthy article using Lawrence to claim that laws outlawing consensual sex between a teacher and a student in a state university are, are, are invalid under the due process clause. Th that might have been a, an, an anticipatory defense on his purpose. <laughs> but most of these efforts have not been successful, at least yet. But where it will all lead is anyone's guess. The joint opinion in Casey, in a sentence, the majority opinion in Lawrence adopted wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Judge Bork had this comment. This is not an argument, but a 60s oration. <laughs> it, has, it has no discernible intellectual content. It does not even tell us why the right to define one's own concept of meaning includes a right to abortion or homosexual sodomy, 
but not a right to incest, prostitution, embezzlement, or anything else a person might regard as central to his dignity or autonomy. <laughs> the court's talk about the mystery of life brings to my mind three great questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? With all respect, I think the Supreme Court ought to ask itself the same questions. Thank you.